the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money, investing, and more. I think today is a day where we almost have to start with Uber. Maybe there's nothing else to talk about other than Uber, to be quite honest with you. Trade deal pales in comparison with a historic moment where billionaires are going to be made today. Crazy, right? It's, it's, it's a mouthful to start with. Uber's 180 million share IPO priced at $45. Very much so near the low end of the $44 to $50 range that it was playing with at the beginning of the week. So generating gross proceeds of about $8.1 billion. If you do the math on that. This is a market that has had a week of China headlines and Trump headlines, where Trump has framed a narrative that no matter what, the U.S. wins because, well, we're not China. Because if there's a slowdown in trade, it'll hurt them more than it'll hurt us. There's been a lot of backdoor negotiations about getting companies to set up manufacturing in the United States or anywhere but China. A, B, C. So there's a lot of hardball playing at $45 a share when Uber does come public, and it could happen any second company would have market cap about $75.5 billion. Last year, when they were putting together thoughts of raising more money, they thought the company was worth $120 billion. So stop and think for a second. Some people last year thought their shares of the company were worth a lot more than they are today. That's pretty significant. When you write down, when you ride down $120 billion to $75 billion, those are big numbers. So go pencil them in if you want. It's fair to say that IPO pricing is disappointing. A lot of happy faces today on CNBC and Bloomberg. They're they're putting on a good face, but it's disappointing. Uber CEO confirmed this morning that the company has purposely had to go for a more conservative valuation due to the aftermath of Lyft's poor performance. Do you remember where you were when you first had your first Uber ride or your first Lyft ride? Strangely, most people do. The one that kills me is I'd been using Uber and Lyft for probably two years. My brother David comes to town, and we go get some uh, some grubs, some dinner. And he's got his girlfriend, and they were going to a different part of the city than I was going later that night. So I was like, just take an Uber. And he's like, Uber? What is this verb, Uber? So Lyft had some poor performance, and Uber's going to have some poor performance. Now, that doesn't mean aftermarket it has poor performance. It just means today that... A couple months ago, we thought it was going to be worth $120 billion. Now we think it's worth $75 billion. That's significant. So at 45 bucks a share, it has a trailing price-to-sales ratio of about 6.8 compared with Lyft's 9.5. So if I had to own one right there, I'm going to own Uber on a price-to-sales ratio. How much the company is worth versus how much in sales they do. It's not always that easy because uh, some companies will have price-to-sales ratio, like software companies probably deserve a price-to-sales ratio of somewhere between four and six, generally speaking. Now, hardware companies probably deserve a price-to-sales ratio of somewhere between two and four. So you kind of see how, like, where profits can be made. So Lyft's price-to-sales ratio has slid now with their pullback down to about 7.3. 
when they IPO, they were about nine and a half. So you kind of see the markets figuring it out. Like this is what we should be paying for a company that drives us, picks us up per mile. I thought this was a fantastic statistic. Um, it's about $2.50 that Uber pays. You pay Uber. About a buck seventy-five that goes to the driver. So there's only $0.75 cents that goes back to Uber. That's not much. Got a dominant position in the ride-sharing market. It now will have a cheaper valuation than left. It'll have a more diverse set of growth catalysts. And that should help Uber in the post-market. Lyft kind of botched it. In fact, if you look at a lot of IPOs this year, especially this week, Lyft kind of botched it. Learning to invest is learning to compare. I think learning to love is learning to compare. I think a lot of things in life is learning, like, kind of, well, that last person was pretty good to me in the first 100 days, but then it went south. The next person I want to be good to me forever kind of thing. So Uber's got a cheaper valuation when it comes public. When it drops, I think is the right phrase that pays. Um, Lyft says, for their part, we've been taking business away from Uber. So you kind of have to factor that in. But then again, you also you know that they significantly lag Uber in terms of active customers. In 2018, Lyft had 18.6 million active customers, while Uber had over 90 million active customers. I'll be honest with you, this is a lot of Uber for me. I feel like I'm, I'm having my fair share of Uber breakfast. Uber's casting a wider net because it has Uber Eats and Uber freight businesses. It is investing much more aggressively on autonomous driving. In conjunction with its IPO, it secured a $1 billion in new capital from SoftBank, Toyota, and Denso for its advanced technology group, which is focused on you know developing that self-driving car. Which, don't you kind of wish we could stop for one minute and look into the future and see if this whole self-driving car is going to happen? Or when it's going to happen. I love that my car has more self-driving features in it today than it did 5, 10 years ago. I got a new vehicle not that long ago that has this uh, thing where you can set it up so that it follows the car in front of you. It matches its speed. It does it at a pretty safe distance, and it, it does it pretty well. It doesn't feel gimmicky at all. Like, it has a nice, solid feel to it when it's accelerating and decelerating. Now... I've got a friend that I've worked with in the past that his autonomous features were something like uh, the car would stop if he was going to get an accident and didn't. So I think the technology has a bit of ways to go before it catches on with mom and pop. I think you'll see, see what are kind of considered gated in areas become autonomous long before uh, open road. But that's another conversation for another day. Uber has advantages over Lyft. At this point in time, that's what I have to say about it. You have to be very, very cautious on how you approach this. But the company also had a staggering loss of over $3 billion last year. Now, you invest in your company, you invest in people, that's going to happen. Uber's pricing was underwhelming. The conservative pricing has created an appealing valuation that could lure more investors like me into it. It's a little broker advisor before taking any action on any stocks ever mentioned on the show. Cheap, cheaper valuations help. It, it becomes intriguing. A lot of billionaires can be made today. Hmm. That's a funny thought, right? I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing more. Find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. Catch Rob Black and Rob Black and Your Money live on the Bay Area Airwaves. Weekday mornings from 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. And streaming live on the KDOW radio app or KDOW.biz. Nothing is trivial. I still I stand by that. And uh, my favorite quote of all time from a movie 
has to do with mother. And it's mother is the word for God on the lips and hearts of all children. CFP Chad Burton, do you understand that? I have no idea where you're going with that. It's Mother's Day this weekend. Oh, yeah. Jeez, I'm glad you reminded me. Thank you. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, poke, poke. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, let's, let's belittle that and call it trivial and move on, shall we? <laughs> Nothing is trivial. Um, you sent me a text yesterday from listening to the show, which I'm honored and pleased by, and you kind of corrected me. You kind of schooled me. I did a segment recently where I talked about SEP IRAs and self-employed, and I, I uh, put a tie between two a couple where one could work for IBM and one could work as a self-employed uh, and worker, and it all works out great. But you wanted to get on the record and correct that for me. What say you? Yeah, no, I, well, I think that, that that idea of if you're self-employed and one person self-employed and the other person works for a big corporation with all the benefits, I think that's great because um, yeah, having to find your own insurance and everything else when you're self-employed is a, is a task for sure. But what you had mentioned is that uh, the SEP IRA is often overlooked. And I think it was back on April 10th or so, I did a whole show on self-employed and setting up different plans. And there, there's a plan that's been around for quite a while now. I can't even remember how long it's been now, but it's called the Individual 401k. Cool. And it is almost always a better option for self-employed individuals than a SEP IRA. The only time the SEP IRA is better is if, let's say right now, you're self-employed, you're still you know, on extension right now, and you're trying to figure out what to do for 2018, Okay. you can still set up and fund a SEP IRA. It's the only type of plan that you can kind of go backwards, you know, create it now, go backwards, and then fund it and get a deduction for 2018. But going forward for people that are self-employed, unless you're consistently making, you know, over 260000 or so, you're going to get more money in pre-tax or even in a, in a Roth, which I'll explain in a minute, in an individual 401k. So... If, if you're self-employed, you have to realize, first of all, that there is a, for any kind of a defined contribution plan, like a 401k yes. or a SEP IRA, there's a, a limit, a total limit between all sources, whether it's your deferral, company match, profit share, whatever, there's a total max that can go in of $54,000, or if you're going to be 50 year old by the end of the year, $62,000. Okay. So on a SEP IRA, Rob, when, when you're self-employed, if you're just a sole proprietor, an LLC, filing a, a Schedule C on your tax return, the way that the math works is that in a SEP IRA, you can typically only get about 19%. It's not, that's not the exact figure. There's a calculation that's involved. Okay. But about 19% of your profit, of your net income, you know, your, your income minus your expenses, into the SEP IRA. So the only time that you're going to max out and get to that $56,000 limit is if your profit, if your, your net income as a self-employed individual is consistently over 295000 or so, right around in that range. Anytime you're going to make less than that, you're always going to get more money into the individual 401k because the individual 401k is the SEP plus the ability to defer just like anybody working for a company. So you can do the $19,000 deferral or $25,000 if you're going to be 50 or older, plus that profit-sharing contribution that the SEP offers. So if let's say sometimes people make over that amount, that large amount, but then it's lumpy. You know, they're, maybe mm-hmm. they're 
a consultant or something, one year they make a lot, the next year they're not going to make as much, but they want to continue to fund at that higher level. They're always going to get more money into the individual 401k. So it's like you could you could have the individual 401k, which would mean give you the same contribution as the SEP, plus you can choose to defer that 19000 or 25 if you're over 50 into the Roth side of the individual 401k. So it's almost like having the SEP, but also having a giant Roth IRA on top of it. And also, it works so much better. The individual 401k is going to work more, much more efficiently if you decide to incorporate. So some people, they're self-employed, they decide to create an S-corp, okay. and they decide to take some of their money as a wage, W-2, and some of it as a profit distribution. Typically, people do that because they think they're going to avoid a lot of FICA tax, a lot of self-employment tax. Um, but as soon as they do that, it limits how much they're going to be able to put into a retirement plan. So a lot of people end up incorporating, Rob, because somebody tells them to do that. And then they get towards the end of the year, and they can put half as much into a retirement plan as the previous year, and they actually end up paying more taxes. So people, you know, you got to build a team when you're self-employed. you got to have a good financial advisor, a good CPA. They can work together to run modeling to say which plan is the best for you should you even bother incorporating. I have a question. Okay. How much of this is real world? Because I sit behind a microphone and it's kind of ivory tower. I'm I'm doing a lot of theory on this show. I don't run into a lot of people who are small business owners or individual contractors who have $54,000 or $60,000 to pump into a retirement plan. I I, I see people struggling. How, Mm -hmm. because you're in the field, how much do you see this actually incorporated into real world? Oh, a a ton. Okay, Um, good. That that makes me happy. yeah, I mean, we, we we do these types of plans all the time, and the favorite type of plan is the is the kind of the combo plan where you use two different plans. So uh, here's here's a pretty typical situation that I see is somebody kind of you know worked their their life and maybe created a business, sold it or whatever, and they're on several different boards and they're getting paid by several different companies in the form of a 1099. Okay. But they're kind of at the point in life where they're they're really they've created enough income from other places, but they just don't really want to pay taxes on that right now. They're trying to defer as much as possible, or often it's later in life, and they're really trying to catch up and sock away as much as possible because you know, maybe the mortgage is paid off, the kids are out of college, whatever it may be, their expenses are low, so they're finally trying to save more. So you can do a, a combination plan, like an individual 401k with a defined benefit plan. Um, and on that type of a plan, if you're making... A lot of money. Let's say you're making $250,000. You could put away $100,000 of that in some cases, depending on your age and everything else, pre-tax into a defined benefit plan. Plus, set up an, a 401k plan where you're putting in $19,000 directly into a Roth. Okay. And in some cases, 37000 or more into after-tax contributions, which you can turn around and convert to the Roth. So some people are you know, creating... Fifty some thousand dollars a year into a Roth 401k, this mega Roth 401k that I've been talking about a lot. So there's so many options if you're self-employed. This step is kind of the last-minute option. Yeah, but there's there's always a better option with you know individual 401k directly or some of these combo plans that I was talking about. I'm thrilled that you actually see that in real life, if you know what I'm saying, because that's a lot of hardcore information, and it's good to see that it's being put to use. You're going to be doing an event with me coming up May 16th. That's right around the corner at the Toll House Hotel in Los Gatos, California. Uh, We've got about 30 seconds. Anything you want to add to color on that event that's coming up? Um, I mean, now is a perfect time when you get these market rallies, right, and and you see a, a bit of a pullback. 
what should you be doing with that in retirement? When you're, when you're younger, it doesn't really matter. You know, pullbacks are great opportunities. But when you're older, okay. you should see these big run-ups as opportunities to replenish your cash. People can sign up at newfocusfinancial.com. It's May 16th, Toll House Hotel, Los Gatos, California. Use the code RADIO25 to get in for free. Want the podcast with music? Find the link to the other version of the podcast by going to Rob Black's Twitter. His handle is at Rob Black Show. Listen to Rob Black and Your Money weekday mornings, 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back in. Rob Black and Your Money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. Corporate asked me to run a quick interview with someone named Alex Sultani. Did I get your name correct, Alex? This is actually Matt Thompson from Skyview Capital. Hey, Matt. Good morning. How are you? Tell me a little bit about Skyview Capital. Sure. So Skyview Capital is a private equity venture capital firm based in Los Angeles. It's in about uh, 25 transactions over the past 10 years. What does carve-outs and what sort of transactions are you doing? I don't think that's something that most people are familiar with. Yeah. So we specialize on buying individual units or carve-outs out of businesses. So, for example, maybe there's a a company with 10 divisions, and one of the divisions may be underperforming or they they sort of lost interest in due to a a management change. We'll come in and and buy that carved-out unit. And then that that little piece, that that unit, a lot of times doesn't come with the shared back office of HR, IT, finance, legal. So we'll put those functions back in place so that that unit then can go on to be a separate business. So, Matt, give me an example. I, I think I have an idea of what you're talking about. Like maybe, for instance, a financial firm has an insurance department, an investing department, and maybe the insurance rainmaker wants to retire, so you buy into that part of the company and help the other side kind of thrive and get the resources that it needs and get the owner out of the company, so to speak. Is that about what you do? Uh, we really focus on TMT. So, you know, I went to Stanford. I'm really familiar with the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, we really do a lot of deals in the technology, media, telecom space. Okay. And, uh, for example, we've done a lot of software companies. So sometimes there's a software company that may not be core to the parent company. Got it. And we'll buy that, focus on it with our India operations, maybe launch some new features, and then hopefully uh, cash flow the business or sell it to another buyer. How ultimately do you determine if a subsidiary is ripe for a corporate carve-out and is a good fit? Because, like you said, you focus on TMT. Is is, is that kind of like the, where the scope starts and finishes? So we'll look at... We're pretty opportunistic. We've looked at things in consumer space, industrial, but our sweet spot is really in, in a software company. So a lot of times there's a software company and maybe they've got thousands of products and the, the new CEO comes in and wants to focus on, on you know, 90% of them. So that other 10%, they may not want to give it focus. And we were able to buy those business units and then give them the focus where they can succeed. How do you source these corporate carve-outs? So it's pretty similar to any private equity or venture capital firm. We've got business development teams of people that go out and go to trade shows and meet with meet with potential sellers. Uh, we've got contacts with investment banks and law firms and uh, consulting firms. Uh, we also, you know, we work with some of these firms that sell off distressed assets, um, either out of bankruptcy or of a or an assignment for benefit of creditors transaction. 
operationally speaking, Skyview Capital, you have to apply your resources to the subsidiaries um, and ultimately become independent and help you know all parties kind of get happy and content, so to speak. Um, how easy is that to pull off at times? So I think it's harder than, than most people think. And that's why there's very few people, firms that sort of focus on this. Uh, we've built up this expertise of having in-house experts in HR and finance and legal and IT that are skilled at negotiating this carve-out, setting up a transitional service arrangement so that we can have a period of transition with the parent so things don't just come to a screeching halt, and then building up those capabilities. And by, by able to do that, we can, you know, we've built up this expertise in bringing in these orphan units and then growing them back up again. I'm taking a look at one of the ones that you recently did, and again, I'm sorry that I can't put my head around this because it's kind of not my world, so to speak, but give us a couple more examples. Um, I see Conduit Incorporated, and I'm looking at their websites and everything, and I'm kind of getting a piece of a feel for the action yeah, sure. here. Go ahead. Sure. So that was a very recent transaction. Uh, it closed uh, several months ago. So we bought a unit from Conduit, and Conduit was formerly Xerox, um, and they had a they have a large number of units, and we bought about $400 million of contact center, call center contracts. So we bought some great customer relationships, and then now we are now we are taking that, that business and then putting it under new branding, so now we call it Continuum Global Solutions. We made the website, we brought in new team members, and we're growing that business. And what's interesting, we then recently, just about a month ago, bought a business called King Tele- Teleservices, which we then rolled under Continuum. So now we're building up this platform, a larger call center business that can answer uh, call center requests around the world. Seems like you must be pretty busy using your private equity firm as a kind of a big resource for companies and, and helping them out. That's correct. Anything else you want to add about what you do? So we've actually done some other deals uh, up and run, up and around the 101 uh, freeway up in the Bay Area. So uh, we bought businesses from VMware and EMC. Uh, we, we, we A couple years ago, we bought a, their EMC's Dropbox equivalent was called Syncplicity. Syncplicity is like a file-sharing business. So we bought that, focused on it, focused on the features. Turn it from very unprofitable to able to sell it to another public company called Axway in France. And then from VMware, uh, we bought an underperforming unit called Digital Fuel, and then we sold it to a public company called Aptio, which then was recently sold to a private equity firm. So we're very involved in these very interesting special situation transactions. It is pretty interesting, especially when you start talking about 101 and tech companies. Uh, <laughs> it definitely perks up the ears. I haven't been involved in owning shares of EMC or VMware for a long time, and sometimes these companies get like big headlines for years and years and years, and they just kind of disappear, and that's kind of where you come in and kind of help bail out the companies. I don't really think it's, you know, they're, they're still great companies. I, I agree. I'm not saying that. They're fo- that they weren't focused on, and this allows them to then focus on the areas they want to pursue, like perhaps um, Kubernetes or more, more advanced technologies. Got it. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you very much. It's uh, Skyview Capital. People can learn more by searching skyviewcapital.com. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Today is the big Uber IPO day. Um, And it's interesting because what Skyview Capital 
kind of does is let's say Uber Eats decides to like they're not making the profits. They're not doing it quite right, and the company wants to focus on their core business of picking up and dropping off people, or what will their core business be down the road? Um, it brings up a lot of questions, especially when you're a business person. You do tend to open a lot of doors, and uh, sometimes they just stay open. That's where private equity could come in and help. That's Skyview Capital. Markets are lower today. A lot of headlines coming out today on trade wars in China. And it's interesting to note that I think President Trump has done a pretty good job of framing the story that we'll be okay. Would he be as positive if our unemployment was at 5, 6, 7, 8%? Probably not. But we've got full employment right now in the United States, and we've got very low inflation. So if you're going to retinker your trade deals, this is the one to do it. And I heard some people talking today on financial news about China and how they tend to promise one thing and then deliver another. It seems a little cliche. It seems a little maybe uh, old-fashioned. But the commentator went on to say, yeah, China will make a deal. Change the terms later. What's weird about this one is that they've been making a deal and they change the terms before the deal gets signed. Now, I know China's got an opinion on this. And I'm sure their media is not being, uh, how shall we say, as tough on them as, say, the United States is being and trade secrets and technology and areas along those lines. Um, You know, one of the big problems, and you can see this, is, you know, we want to create a win-win situation. That's that's cliche, though, right? So in China, 24 movies a year are allowed to come in from foreign markets. One of them is this year's Avengers Endgame. And what's to note about that is even... Before it came out in the United States, like five minutes into it being in China, it was posted on the Internet. And it had the Chinese watermarks, and clearly it was done in China. So we want their government to police that and stop that. You know, when you make a company, when you make a movie that costs $300, $400 million, and it's going to pull in a billion, two billion plus dollars, there's kind of a don't steal from me mentality that should be in place. And again, I don't really want to go down the rabbit hole of saying China's notoriously thieves, intellectual property thieves, but there's a lot of that going on, and that's part of what's trying to be framed in this debate of the China-U.S. trade wars. Then there's the United States and how much we spend uh, for other countries, whether it be NATO or whether it be as consumers. Um, so will a trade deal get done? Yes. Is it super important that it gets done today? No. Um, In theory, you want to get it done right, because if you're only going to update these every 10, 20, 30, 40 years, that print gets kind of old fast, right? So how do you even talk about digital music and digital media? You know, when the laws in China were written 40 years ago, when the laws in the United States were written 40 years ago. So it's difficult. Um, And it's a... A trade deal will be like a 400-page you know, document. A trade package is not just headlines. So anyhow, and what you don't want is them buying easy things like soybeans, per se. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Don't forget, there's another hour of today's show to listen to. Find it now at kdow.biz or on the KDOW radio app. Seminar in Los Gatos, California, the Toll House Hotel. Great parking, great city. 
a little difficult to get to in rush hour, but plan ahead. We've got a lovely restaurant and a bar there, and the city is fantastic for food and drinks as well. So that's coming up Thursday, the 16th, six days from now, Los Gatos, California. CFP, Chad Burton's back with me to help promote it. Uh, you can go to the website, newfocusfinancial.com. There's some really good content there. Uh, people are becoming more and more aware of all the stuff they can get from you, Chad, but they can also sign up for the event there. Use the code RADIO25 to get in for free. Now, you got an email. This is an interesting one, Chad. My 10-year-old daughter has $900 to invest. That sounds about right. Should she invest in Vanguard VTI or Fidelity FSKAX? Both are great companies, so that's where I'm going at first with that. But which one's more tax-efficient in the long run? That is a great question, because basically VTI, both of them are total stock market index funds, so they have the same exact underlying holdings. Both of them have very, very low fees. It's just all about the structure in this case. So Vanguard VTI is an exchange-traded fund, an ETF. Okay. And all an ETF is, it's a basket of stocks, just like a mutual fund. Mm-hmm. Um, but the difference is, is exchange-traded funds, ETFs, they trade all day long. So there's price action all day long. You can buy them and sell them and put stop losses and options and everything else on them. Same exact underlying holdings. Whereas the Fidelity FSKAX, it's a mutual fund. And mutual funds only trade once a day. So if you buy or sell in the morning, you're not going to get the price until the end of the day. Once all of the underlying assets at the end of the day are calculated, here's the the value, and that's the price at the end of the day. So in retirement accounts, it doesn't make a difference at all. But in taxable accounts, let's say you open up an individual account in your name, joint account with your spouse or trust account, that's when it makes a difference because... The, the, where ETFs have gained so much popularity, Rob, is that when ETFs are created kind of on the fly and redeemed on the fly, there's a lot of exchanges going on. You know how if you want to exchange one rental property for another rental property, you can do a 1031 exchange and do a like-kind exchange and, and defer your tax problem? Yep. The, the same thing can kind of happen with an ETF where there's a lot of swapping going on, on redemption and creation of these shares. So they tend to be more tax efficient. They can control the tax situation better than a mutual fund. And to go back a little bit, all the way back to, say, the year 2000, where you had all of these mutual funds that owned these tech companies that were doing really, really well, and then all of a sudden, people finally got into these mutual funds in 1999, and then 2000, the stock market dropped, and the value of their funds, the value of their mutual funds went down, and all of a sudden, they got to the end of the year, and they had this huge tax bill. It's because in a mutual fund, when you go buy in, you're buying into potential capital gains exposure. So if you buy in today, and the manager decides to sell a stock that they've owned forever with a huge gain tomorrow you're going to help pay the taxes on that. Now, it increases your basis so you don't get as you don't, you're not going to pay taxes twice in the future. Okay. But every every single fund you can look up on morningstar.com has a potential capital gains exposure. So when you have a similar holding, um, you're typically going to get better tax uh, 
protection in an ETF over the long run. All right, so if you're making a one-time investment in a taxable account uh-huh. and you're choosing between an ETF or a mutual fund, I would typically go with the ETF option in a taxable account. Retirement account, it doesn't matter. It's fascinating so, because both are good decisions. Both likely would work out well for a 10-year-old girl over time, yep. but there is one that's more efficient, and that's the way you should angle it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, either one of them, if, if you're into the total stock market index or an S&P 500 and, and one company gets kicked out of it okay. and replaced with another one, there's going to be still a tax event. There's still a little bit of taxes that are due on either fund because each fund also pays dividends. Hmm. But if there's major changes, the ETF is typically going to be a little bit more tax efficient. Now, crazy enough, Rob, Vanguard just, um, was awarded, I believe, a patent on their mutual funds. They created a way to help stop that problem. Interesting. Oddly enough, on the mutual fund. So that, that's been kind of in the news lately. Now, he, here's the biggest difference. Let's say the person wants to invest $900 into an ETF, but they also want to set up a monthly contribution, which I'm a huge fan of. You and I both love these automatic investment programs, right? Yep. They just they add up so quickly over time. People turn around and they do it for a couple of years and they're like, wow, I don't realize how quickly that would add up. And for those that are trying to add a monthly contribution on top of a one-time contribution, that's where the mutual fund kind of has an advantage. It's almost easier to go to a Fidelity and set up an automatic contribution to a mutual fund that happens and it's bought. And an ETF, oftentimes you have more steps to do that. Um, You have to set up a contribution to the brokerage account and then set up the trade and then set up the dividend reinvestment. So it's a little bit easier on a monthly contribution. So that's where the mutual fund might gain an advantage. But when you're doing one-time larger investments for the taxable account, you tend to want to lean towards the, the ETF versus the index fund. So you got this email from Sheila, and you can, people can email you, chat at newfocusfinancial.com. I ran the numbers real quick. That $900 for the 10-year-old girl, if money doubles every 7.2 years, it'll be worth $110,000 when she's 60. Not bad. No, not at all. It's a good start, and it gets her involved in it, too. Yep. Um, eventually, show her the statements, show her, show her what's in the index. Total stock market index is everything. It's such a better index than the S&P 500 because it has small cap, mid cap, you know, large cap companies. Yeah. And over time, when you have full market cycles, 15, 20 years, typically smaller companies tend to outperform larger companies. When I was 10 years old, I was eating boogers. I wasn't thinking about investing. So I think we're uh, in a better world today than back in the 70s. Anyway, Mr. Burton, we'll see you. We'll see you Thursday, and people can jump on your webpage right here, right now, newfocusfinancial.com. They can email you, chat at newfocusfinancial.com. Sign up for the event in Los Gatos, California at the Toll House Hotel, 630 to 830. Uh, You can sign up at newfocusfinancial.com. Thanks for answering that email, Chad, and please join me again soon. Uh, Big seminar Thursday. That's six days from now. It's right around the corner. Um, 630 to 830. In Toll House, Los Gatos, California, real close to Saratoga, down by the San Jose area. Great location, great place to stop by. Sign up at newfocusfinancial.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.